Hello everyone, I'm Tech Sergeant Shane Hughes. And I'm Airman Jillian Manus. And you're listening to Beyond the Horizon, a podcast produced by the 178th Wing in Springfield, Ohio. On today's show, we sat down with Captain Minshall, one of our security forces defenders who was called to state active duty to support the COVID-19 pandemic response by supporting corrections officers at the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections facilities, and was later called to support the Columbus Police Department in the response to civil unrest that swept the nation. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Captain Minshall. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So what missions did security forces support during the COVID-19 pandemic and civil unrest? So the, the state of Ohio activated the National Guard and uh, the, the Air Force was, was lucky enough to get in that activation. And uh, the, specifically from my perspective in the security forces mission set, we were called to uh, support missions in the ODRC, so the Ohio Department of Corrections uh, prisons. And uh, shortly after that, uh, we got we called again to support the uh, kind of civil unrest in cities throughout the state of Ohio. Primarily, we were activated and working in Columbus and up in Cleveland with uh, additional forces kind of spread throughout the state, kind of on standby, depending on uh, where the need may occur. But the two major ones were, uh, from security forces perspective, uh, the prison systems, and then supporting Cleveland and Columbus. Okay, and tell me a little bit about the support that you provided for each of those missions. So, from a starting off with the the COVID pandemic, essentially, uh, a lot of the prisons you probably saw on the news were getting hit with uh, high positive rates, and a lot of the. Uh, um, the COs were falling ill to cor- the coronavirus or had high risk conditions and were unable to come to work. And uh, so when the, the National Guard was activated and we were kind of plugged into the prisons, they put uh, soldiers and airmen in uh, like augmentation roles and CO roles for the corrections facilities. And we had uh, we had security forces members, uh, Army infantry, and Army MPs uh, working throughout the state of Ohio, primarily in uh, two prisons were the big hot zones at first, uh, Pickaway County, so PCI and MCI, Marion County Institution. Uh, and those were the two major areas of operation we were in, also supporting um, Franklin Medical Center and OSU Wexner Center where we had, that's where a lot of the terminal or more serious COVID patients were. Uh, and we had COs kind of working there at like Ohio State Wexner Center, supporting the COs, working static posts through there. And then in the prisons, like doing everything from working in the cell units to assisting in details to you, know, you name it. Okay. And what was that experience like for you personally? So I was, uh, I was tasked as the... Um, uh, operations officer for Task Force Guardian initially, and Task Force Guardian was the operation that was over all of the uh, the, the prison and ODRC mission sets. Uh, so essentially, my role I didn't have to, you know, pull a shift. And at this point, I've promoted myself out of the opportunity to to do that. Uh, I didn't have to pull shifts in the direct prisons, but. It was kind of the staffing and management and coordination between the uh, the guys that we had on the ground working the shifts and kind of integrating with the um, 
with the prisons and the warden and the the higher ups of the the bureaucratic end of ODRC where is the need to put these these members we had a total of uh 250 uh you know airmen we had 50 security forces members we had 100 uh, infantry guys army infantry guys out of the uh 148 here in Ohio and then we also had um a hundred MPs from the MP battalion here in Ohio, and those members were spread between the the facilities that I had mentioned. And ultimately, it, we had uh, resources at MCI, PCI. We had a resource at the uh, Women's Correctional Facility up in Marysville, uh, Belmont Correction Facility down in uh, St. Clairsville area, down along the river, and then we had. Uh, uh, the folks there at OSU Wexner and those 250 members were spread throughout, you know, those five locations. And my role was kind of coordinating, ensuring that those folks on the ground had what they needed from PPE to the, uh, they knew when they were supposed to, what, what their mission was, you know, tasked from the, the guard and it didn't conflict with kind of what the local warden or their, their civilian counterpart was telling them what they had or should be doing. So it was kind of balancing that. Um, and ultimately, I think it, the, the folks, all the folks that were involved were thrilled, to, you know, to be there. It's one of those things that nobody ever, you know, nobody wants to deploy because or nobody wants to be activated because, like, you, if that's happening, something bad is going on. But when you're called upon, you you're happy to serve. And that's kind of the mentality that we saw out of the you know, the Army Infantry, the Army MPs, and the security forces. And especially the the security forces members were thrilled to have the opportunity to get in the mix and help the state because that was a, a unique opportunity for the air to kind of come in and, and showcase our skills. So security forces does uh, pretty frequent deployments overseas. What was it like to kind of be deployed at home? So we, again, it's... Uh, you know, I've I've got a, a member in the unit that 60 days prior to this, I'm talking to him about what he, you know, what he wanted to do and like his engagement with uh, with the career field and everything else. And this kid was uh, he's prior active duty. He's been in the guard for a few years and he's he's working through college and his he's done the active duty deployments and done all that stuff. And his take was, you know, I'm in the guard. I really would like to serve the community. So you know, fast forward 60 days in this guy's prison with a bunch of infected inmates and uh, he's doing it with a smile. You know, when I'm out there doing kind of sight checks or going through the prisons to see our guys, you know, I'm touching base with them, say, hey, this is exactly what you asked for. Are you happy? And, you know, it's it, happy to serve was kind of the mentality. And again, working with the um, to be able to integrate with the Army was was really cool from uh, a career perspective. The The Army leadership I was working for and working with was outstanding. Uh, the Army does a lot of things, you know, exceptionally. The Air does a lot of things exceptionally. Right is somewhere, like perfect is somewhere in the middle. Um, and it was the, the folks on the ground were, were working right with, you know, Private specialists, Army first sergeants, everything else. We're working with air master sergeants, senior airmen, staff sergeants, all above. We were fully integrated throughout the throughout the locations, and then the the support elements from the state, from the uh, 
uh, you know, the the logistics side of the air and the army kind of coming together in the state was outstanding. So you've talked about the ODRC mission a little bit. Would you talk about the civil unrest in Columbus? What was the support that we provided to the state in that mission? The, ultimately, the support wound up and it turned into uh, critical site security and traffic control and traffic control points. And that was the that was the lion's share of the duties that the the security forces, the defenders, or the the army MPs were doing. Uh, and you know, it's the security forces is, is such a diverse skill set. You've got to be ready to. Uh, we train on everything from nuclear security. We've got canine. We've got you know nuclear recap, we've got flyaway security, we've got uh, SRT teams, CRT teams, we've got uh, basic LE stuff, air-based defense, like all kinds of, like we're a jack of all trades because we're the, in essence, a gr- the ground force of the Air Force. Um, so that kind of positioned us that we're just, we're always ready to just adapt. And when they, when we came on scene for the, the support in Columbus and likewise in Cleveland, when it was kind of that hurry up and wait, and now you're just being your critical site security, it was, oh, well, we've trained for this our whole life. Like, we can do this. We do it out on the flight line. Those guys, you know, they do it overseas. They do it at the gate. Uh, they know how to control themselves. They know how to control their, you know, emotions, posture. They can take uh, pushback from, you know, their peers, the public. They can sit, you know, and stand guard for hours on end in a Humvee and not complain too much. Uh, like we're, we've trained our whole lives for this moment, but it was also, you know, it was good for, uh, again, folks were excited to get involved, support their local city, support their local community. And the folks downtown, um, you know, likely for the most part took us open arms. Like we, they recognized quickly that the, the guard isn't there as an oppressive force, you know, we're there. So, uh, the, the power facilities don't get destroyed. We're there to support from a, you know, there's a larger presence. It looks like a hard target because now there's a tactical vehicle there and somebody carrying a weapon and, uh, you know, kitted up in gear. Uh, but they, I think uh, mostly folks downtown recognized that we were there to support. So the community didn't, you know, infrastructure didn't fall apart. Okay. And what was your, um, what was it like for you during that mission set? So again, uh, I've promoted myself out of the opportunity to be down, you know, and 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 work full shifts doing that stuff. But uh, right after it was my last day of the the prison mission, and so I, I was done, punched out. I'm done on Friday, and the I'm at home, and this is over the weekend, and the. Uh, somebody says, hey, the National Guard just got activated for uh, civil unrest in Ohio. And I'm thinking, no, they didn't. That's whatever. And uh, I get a text from the lady that I had been working from, Lieutenant Colonel Fielding. And she said, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, this is happening. And uh, essentially, we had been activated. And she, as the the MP battalion commander, was also like the, the first tier, first string call for um, the the army calls it NGRF. It's like National Guard Response Force, or I'm probably butchering it, and somebody will correct me. But 
they've got they've got folks on standby that are ready to go and deploy for this type of stuff. And that that band had already been kind of tapped with the prison stuff, but was quick, quickly transitioning for the civil unrest. So, you know, night one was kind of chaotic. Of we need everybody, we need everybody here now, and we went down to. Uh, Columbus Police uh, Training Facility, the academy there, and they all of the at that time it was the Army uh, MP battalion or MT, MP companies that are tagged for this mission kind of started to trickle in, and the the city had given us kind of a list of critical resources and sites they wanted us to secure, and it was like police headquarters, some AEP power facilities. They wanted a, a QRF or a quick reaction force on standby. So it was very chaotic because we had to start pulling in resources from all over the state, getting all of them armed up, having them, you know, all of the correct gear, all the correct weapons, and then in process them in a way that we can't just throw a guy out the door with a gun and say, go forth and do great things. There's a, there's a formal process of you're now on state active duty. These are your rules of engagement. Here's a Here's what your actual mission is. This is why you're carrying a weapon. It's not to protect critical site security or anything like that. It's strictly for self-defense. Uh, we also had non-lethal weapons that, that were kind of briefed, and we talked about the, the reasons for that. But the, the first, first day, the first 24, 36 hours, was chaotic of bringing people on. Shortly after they brought on the, the Army, the first string, uh, the air side got the official call, and uh, we— a hundred, right at a hundred security forces, kind of follow-on forces were activated, and that was the, that was the day after. So I think believe it was Saturday was kind of the first night. You know, it's, everything's crazy, and then by Sunday evening, a uh, hundred more security forces were were rolled on airside, and ultimately that became uh, what they called Task Force Harmon, and that was the operational forces in. Columbus and Cleveland, and that was right under uh, that. That force became right under 500 operational forces between the two cities, and it was uh, Major Gibson who became the task force commander over all of that. Why were these missions important? So the all, the missions were important because, uh, you know, with the starting with the pandemic and the the coronavirus, the Ultimately, the, the prison system, ODRC, was testing all of the inmates, and there was so much fear associated with uh, it between PCI and MCI. They, each of those facilities had around 2,500 inmates in them, and 70% of the inmates tested positive. And with that, the other piece to that, so 70% of these 2,500 people were testing positive. 90% of those folks were asymptomatic. And so you had, you know, 90% of the population there just kind of walking around, no symptoms. And then, you know, 10% that had cold and flu-like symptoms, and some of them that were sick, sick, and they ultimately got pushed to um, Ohio, the Wexner Center. And with that, the staff became ill. And when the staff becomes ill and becomes out or has pre-existing conditions or stuff, and the state of Ohio, you know, offers them extra leave to take, there becomes a staffing issue and a security issue, and that created the need, and that need is what generated the, the importance of the mission. That's why we got the call to kind of come in and help. Those PCI and MCI were the two main prisons that had the huge outbreaks, but they were also the prisons that did most of the mass testing. 
Uh, other prisons had, you know, some trends that were going up. Uh, BCI, the Belmont Correction Facility, was kind of a later one that had uh, an impact of you had the um, a lot of the gar- the corrections officers were sick and physically sick, unable to come into work. The warden down there that we worked with, solid guy, and talking with him, and he was he was so down that he got sick during his his uh, prison's time of need. And it was that type of mentality that kind of created the, the prison need or the, the need for that mission. Uh, with the civil unrest stuff, I mean, it was just a, the need was the, there's a, there's a limited amount of resources and the Columbus had tapped all of their, you know, all of their internal organic resources. And then the suburbs, were called in and their resources had been exhausted. And, you know, the, the army more so than the air has an easy button of manning that some of these local PDs don't have. The army just has it. It seems like a ton of folks. Um, the, like there's close to a thousand army MPs in the state of Ohio. And then we've got, uh, uh, right at 400 security forces in the state of Ohio. So it's kind of an, an extra easy button of you can tap and go. And and the need was just, it was, that was the importance, the, the manning and, and kind of detriment of both the prison system, manning and staffing and security, and then the, the detriment of local PD staffing and security and manning. How has your training helped prepare you and um, the airmen for these missions? So again, at the... Security forces trains on a wide variety of stuff. We carry, uh, we we do less than lethal training uh, that we've got to carry all, you know, maintain that certification constantly. Uh, a, a defender will do weapons training quarterly, which is what I found more than what the Army Infantry and Army MPs do weapons training because we've got... Uh, like a home station or a law and order mission that requires us to arm up on a a daily basis, we've got to maintain, consistently maintain that proficiency. So everybody in security forces is always ready to, to carry an M9, to carry an M4, and most everybody's qualified for 240, 249, 203, um, a, a, a mix of heavy weapons. Uh, so we've got the weapons qual done Today, during UTA weekend, they're doing combatives training. Uh, so, you know, that's something that we do on a regular basis. Again, a less than lethal component. Uh, through our tech school and through our training, we also work, you know, detainee operations is something that security forces has been called to do in the career field, both, you know, overseas um, and, and, and militarily as well. So... It's the the bag of training, the bag of tricks that security forces has to carry around with them kind of enables us to respond to different things. Like out here on the base, we've got to we've got to play the law enforcement role. And we're we're comfortable with that. Like the all of the traffic stops, interacting with people, uh, airbase defense type stuff, CONUS. Overseas, we're comfortable with you know, getting in tactical vehicles, doing TCPs, doing ECP operations, vehicle searches, uh, riot and crowd control, um, air base defense, again, critical site 
security is our bread and butter, the flyaway security team. So it's we've got such a, a wide lens on things that we train for and keep ourselves ready for that we're just we're postured. There's folks that are way better at us at very specific items. I, I have no doubt about that. Uh, but there's not too many career fields out there that are that are able to respond to such a wide variety of things. And I think that's what kind of postures our training and our package uh, better. And then, again, kind of, I, I believe that, I'm a sole believer that security forces is the best uh, career field in the Air Force. I've done it for 16 years. Uh, yeah, I was enlisted. I enjoy it. I, I love the mission set. I love the folks in it. Uh, love what we do. But I think that it takes a, a young person very quickly and especially in the Air Force, and then throws them a weapon, and they've got to make those decisions as a 17-, 18-year-old kid. And we train leaders very quickly. Uh, you're out there, you know, you're six months on the job, and you're out there at the front gate, and you've, you're gate lead. And you've got somebody that just came back from tech school now working for you at that gate, looking to you, what do I do, what do I don't do? And instantly, that, you know, airman, six months in the fight, becomes the leader, whether he knows it or not. And uh, that type of mentality and that type of uh, instant kind of responsibility bodes well to situations of uncertainty. And the folks in the prisons, like that was, there. there's a real threat there. Uh, we had folks that got in use of force type scenarios while they were working corrections duties. At the same time, they're being told they're going to die of coronavirus because it's going to if they look at it, they're going to catch it. So they having that type of mindset and that type of readiness and training prepared them for things like that. It, and further to that point, the uh, one of the things we were telling the, the guys and girls downtown, you know, they, they posted out for a mission. Every time they left, we were staging out a Rickenbacker. And every time they left to go downtown, they were uh, they put a trip ticket in, they got in their tactical vehicles, and they went downtown and posted where they needed to post it was uh, when we'd go out and do post checks and talk with them, like in many cases, those people were in more danger. Those soldiers and airmen were in more danger in their hometown than they were, you know, in a deployed environment in working some some air base or um, army base or something overseas because there's there's a sense of control on a, an overseas base, especially in some locations. There's not much sense of control in a uh, an open, public, unruly, you know, environment. We've got video of literally looks like a mob of nearly a thousand people kind of overtaking a Humvee of we had two defenders out there alone and unafraid or what looks like they were alone and un- unafraid as a, a group of protesters kind of passed them and surrounded them, not in any aggressive manner, but the optics look scary. And on the ground, talking to those guys, there was a lot of, you know, some fear associated with that kind of rises. Uh, but just the, the, the we, we breed leaders, we train leaders, we, we were very good at doing nothing. We, we've trained for that our whole lives, I said, when we had airframes, you know, gate, ramp, gate go to the gate for four hours, go to the ramp for four hours, and close your day out at the gate for four hours, and nothing happens. Uh, we, we can stomach that. But 
the the fear is we just train for when it happens and you know it, through the prison stuff and then through the the exercise you know the civil unrest it happened and the 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 forces responded okay so what about um different exercises that you've gone to uh, i understand in february security forces didn't exercise yeah pat south so patriot south uh again we've we postured for the back to the training we've trained for this moment our whole lives we've uh over the past kind of three years we've been working towards you know more of a dom ops response mindset probably five years ago sorry can you explain dom ops so the- dom ops is uh domestic operations so it's it's the military or national guard working in the on conus on u.s soil so over the past, well, five years ago-ish, with the National Guard dumped DOM Ops kits on us. So it's these, they on security forces, they dropped two pallets of all this domestic operations gear that had riot shields, that had like um, the bullhorns, the LRADs, and LRADs, the noise machine that you can kind of post up on a vehicle. Uh, it's a noise dispersal thing. Um, they gave us all of this stuff and, you know, defenders are oh sweet cool stuff let's go play with it and like so we played with it and kind of put it back in the box to the best we could and we had all the riot gear and stuff and as that as that equipment sat over there it you know that gnawing thing is at you okay now they've given us this we've got to know how to use it so we started to build into our training plan how to utilize and implement the the dom ops gear and over the course of the uh you know receiving those kits, we started doing all of the stomp and drag, the line drills, the riot shield stuff that you'd see on TV. Uh, but also we had the opportunity to work in, uh, it was called Patriot South. It was a, uh, a national, national level exercise that integrated uh, Air Force security forces and logistics folks and a whole, the Air Guard into uh, civilian law enforcement. And that was held down in um, Camp Shelby, I believe around Gulfport, um, and we worked with Mississippi wildlife officers and ran a kind of domestic operations exercise that that was built around uh, the idea that we're responding to a hurricane disaster just kind of run through. It was a, a make-believe Katrina scenario, and now it's the search and rescue stuff, the working with local law enforcement, everything from setting up points of distribution for food to uh, taking lead, learning from the local law enforcement officers and, you know, taking their, letting them take lead and we kind of augment and support the local PD. And that, the great thing about that training exercise and the timeliness of it is that happened in February. The the prison staff and the civil unrest happened uh, April, May, June. So we had just come off of a, a national level exercise where the security forces had worked with security forces all over the all over the U.S., but we'd worked with Rickenbacker, Youngstown, uh, or no, I'm sorry, Rickenbacker, Toledo, and Springfield had all kind of integrated together. So we're working with the def- the local defenders that were again called for the the prison missions and then the civil unrest. And it was we knew the names, we knew people, we knew the faces, we knew their strengths, we knew each other's weaknesses, we knew the the equipment shortfalls they had, the pluses they had, all of that. So. It just, it was a perfect storm of preparedness that this all happened. 
And we couldn't have planned it better to be kind of ready for the response. What were the biggest similarities and differences between the two missions, civil unrest and being in the prisons? The So the from at the lowest level, I think it was the uh, the creature comforts that the the folks having in the prison missions had over the civil disturbance missions. So under the prison response, everybody was under Title 32F orders. And the state of Ohio and uh, the guard and everybody did exactly – they took care of every military member to the best of their abilities during the, the COVID response because they took everything into consideration, putting them in – putting members that were in, like, COVID hot zones – they were separating them and they were living in hotels separate from their families. So there, there was a, a legit fear based on everything that was put out that, again, you look at COVID, you're going to catch it, that I can't look at COVID in the prison and then go home to my wife and children. And so the state did an excellent job and ODRC did an excellent job providing the soldiers and airmen uh, a nice hotel per diem and a, a safe space away from their family while they were operating. The, uh, and, it, you know, the, the, local, the local hotels and stuff that the soldiers and airmen were in were fantastic. They were appreciative of the business, and they took excellent care of, of the, the folks that were in their facilities. And, the, you know, the commun- there was a community outpouring where, People found out that soldiers and airmen were staying at certain locations, and they were dropping off food. They were, it was it was amazing what the USO did, and then just local local members of the community were doing. So fast forward to prison missions, all of a sudden you're under uh, a different set. It's it's a much more fluid environment. You're under a different type of order, and instead of living at the Drury Inn downtown Columbus getting a nice breakfast every day supplied by the jury, you're sleeping with 300 of your closest friends in a garage. So it's a, I think that was the, at the ground level, that's the significant difference, you know, from a creature comfort way. And then I guess at the, uh, at, at a mission level, the, the stakes f- felt higher with the civil unrest stuff because at that point we became, uh, everybody was armed you're, you're no longer working in a prison still. It's an uncontrollable, but it's a controlled environment. The civil unrest, you're working in a little more uncontrollable environment. Uh, the stakes were raised, and now you're doing it on less sleep, sleeping with 300 of your closest friends in a garage. And it, it worked out. Everybody was, you know, we didn't have any incidents and stuff like that. But the there was uh, people burn out at faster and at a higher rate. When they're working longer hours and their their creature comforts aren't as good. Of course, the army we didn't sleep directly in Columbus. We didn't sleep directly with the army, and they had it in their mind that we were still getting hotels and full per diem and everything else. But we actually just slept on Combato's mat and told them how nice it was. So that was those were probably the the two significant differences. And then just more people. The prison task force guardian all in was right at 250 people. The joint task force peacekeeper that ultimately task force Harmon kind of fell into was 1,300 people total. Tell us about the different interactions you had um, with other people during these missions. 
um, like the correctional officers, uh, inmates, protesters, um, joint forces, um, like the army. So I'll speak a little bit from my personal interaction, but also just on the behalf of the the folks that were grinding it out every day. Uh, and they put the work in, not me. I didn't. I wasn't pulling long shifts in the prisons, and I wasn't sitting in a Humvee for 16 hours. But again, the interaction with the Army at my level was outstanding. Uh, learning their strengths and and showing showcasing our strengths was great. At the in the prisons, the the inmates were. We got at first. The inmates were kind of standoffish when when the guard comes to town. They thought like something bad is going to happen, like it's uh, oppressive forces here. But quickly, when they realized that wasn't the case, like we were, were not necessarily there to, you know, to bust skulls or anything like that, we're there to support. Uh, guys were getting a lot of, hey man, thanks for your service, still inside of prisons and appreciate what you're doing and that kind of stuff. So there was some, it was a positive large, mostly positive interactions. Again, they're inmates and they're still prisoners and our guys had to, you know, in some cases put hands on and were exposed to all kinds of things from prison food to OC spray to everything. So we were well received and the, the ODRC staff was largely thankful that we were, we were there for the most part. And, uh, especially the ODRC leadership was, was extremely thankful that the the guard was there to kind of support their man in crisis. Downtown Columbus, I kind of spoke on earlier, uh, and in Cleveland, the the civilians. It was it, we were uh, we were accepted. The public was also dropping off food and pizzas and stuff for us. When I was downtown one time, uh, a a guy came up and he started talking. We were, Major Gibson and I were doing some post visit, post checks, and uh, a gentleman came up. And he starts kind of ranting a little bit about everything that's going on, and, and directing the the soldiers and airmen that were the soldiers that we were around on, you know what how how they should think and what they should do. The soldiers were extremely professional, just kind of letting the gentleman talk, uh, you know, maintain their 360 security of what's going on. And then the gentleman asked, "Hey, I'd like to lead you guys in a prayer and pray." And okay, so it, absolutely, go for it. The gentleman prayed, and everybody, you know, kind of partake, but nobody dropped their guard and kind of degraded that that security posture. So this guy came up, wasn't necessarily thrilled with what everything that was going on, asked to pray for the situation publicly for the, the soldiers that were out there. He did, and he said, you all have a nice day, and, go on, and kind of went on about his way. So it was a whole mixed gamut of things, and you had, you know, there's hundreds of stories of of the interactions with the public down there and what they saw and but largely it was positive them dropping off food that uh caught me a little bit by surprise i wouldn't have expected that yeah and it was good food and it was it wasn't uh you had people bringing out popsicles to guys you had people walking across the street to the pizza restaurants or the 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 barbecue place or something that where folks were posted up at and just bringing out stacks of pizzas and dropping them off on people's Humvees. There was, there was a, a real positive outpouring that the community Columbus had, specifically from Columbus that I saw. How did you feel about your role in these missions? I was extremely thankful for the opportunity. I was, I was thankful for the opportunity to uh, 
uh, to learn from my counterparts, to work for uh, Colonel Fielding and the Army MPs and kind of embed with them and learn how they do business. I was uh, extremely thankful for the opportunity to kind of sell and promote security forces because, again, I think it's the the best career field in the Air Force and our uh, I don't. I don't believe that we're fully utilized, or our our talents and skills and expertise are tapped as often, had been tapped as often as I would have liked them to have seen. Uh, so it was cool to be in the mix where we could get involved and serve, and it was it was great to just kind of learn more about uh, the state and how it operates, learn more about the army and how it operates, and and even just the Air Force working. Working some of the nuances with everything. Every time you're activated, or every time you do something, you can pick up something from it. You kind of build your your connections. You build your um, your bench strength of skills that that you can kind of rely on in the future. And I was I was thrilled for the opportunity to do it. How did these missions benefit our airmen? Everything from uh, retention to um, some folks it probably financially helped them because they were, you know, with the COVID thing, not fully employed as they would be in different environments. Uh, and then just that, that feeling of giving back again, helping their community out. Um, I think that folks want to do something. And during this time, this gave defenders, security forces, an outlet to do something and it was not the norm. It wasn't, hey, we've got a manning crisis on base. Can you come out and work some orders on base? No, it was, or it wasn't, I need you to deploy and I need you to go to a country that you've been to multiple times. It was, there's a unique requirement within the state, in your community, we need you. And we had more than enough people that raised their hand and were jumping to, to get on and support these missions. And I think all of that kind of leads into, you know, they get exercise a muscle that they don't use that often, the whole dom ops type thing. They get to um, be around folks that uh, they enjoy being around, their their teammates and the defenders that they work with. Uh, they get to meet new people, give back to the community. I think there's a lot of great things associated with it. And then it also gives us a, a way of, everybody always says, well, when this happens, you, you need to be ready for this because when this happens and now it's like, hey, it did happen. So take me serious. Have your stuff together. Uh, so that's a good remember when type thing. And honestly, too, the uh, with the whole COVID thing and the whole uh, remote drills and all of that stuff, I think that our squadron benefited from just bringing people back in and seeing each other. Uh, was a strong benefit of we're now needed. Let's let's get out of the house and get off the telework and back to to seeing each other, checking each other out. Are you okay? Are you not okay? And you know, laughing, sweating, bleeding, crying, all that stuff together. That's important. So, what what were your expectations going into these missions? And how did that match up to the reality? The career field is sometimes bad about amping everybody up, whether it be an AT or a deployment or an activation of like, Charlie's in the wire, it's gonna be bad. 
you have no idea what you're about to experience. We're going to need you to fast rope into some place and, you know, personally grab Al Baghdadi and snatch him and bring him out. And then there's going to be a 2,000-pound V-bed that goes off, and you're going to have to exfil. So in, everybody's got that. Every defender's got that in the back of their mind, like, this is going to happen. And then when it happened, like, when we got down there, it was kind of situation normal Yes, like, again, critical site security, just with more people. Uh, so th- I think there was some ex- some expectation management that was going on. And up in Cleveland, it was a little different, where I think those folks were much more on a, a strictly standby QRF status, so it was a lot slower for them. Uh, the TCPs in Columbus created more, you know, a d- more dynamic environment, moving vehicles, shutting down you know, traffic at the at the direction of local law enforcement. That that creates that environment of uh, kind of expectation deficiency. I think some of our folks felt that, but they're just so used to feeling that, that again, the defenders were adaptable to it. Like, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for something to happen, and I'm really ready if nothing happens at all. Uh, but I, again, I think that our guys were so excited just to get get us this far because they had never been that far. They had never been activated on a state level, and they were thrilled to serve that way. And again, you know, you talk about your expectations and what you thought about what was so it, the every it, everyone thinks it's going to be some unruly mess. Uh, it could it could certainly become that at the drop of a dime if one cop or one defender or MP or protester did one thing differently that the entire night or entire situation can change. So that's the readiness that we try to breed into the defenders and into security forces is everything's cool until it's not. And then when it's not cool, everything goes sideways and you got to be ready to respond. Um, So our guys are just, they're ready for that and postured for that. We have a lot of guys in our unit that are, uh, and, throughout the career field that are security force or that are local law enforcement, be it Columbus or suburbs. Uh, The previous couple nights leading up to, or the previous night kind of leading up to the governor activating the National Guard, Columbus, you know, had exhausted all of its forces trying to, to stop the civil unrest. And I think that partnered with now you've got a lot of tactical vehicles and more people around squashed and, and calmed some things down. We were more of a calming presence than an escalation of force. Staying on the civil unrest mission, how did our airmen help ensure public safety while still encouraging the free exercise of the First Amendment? I, bottom line up front, I think all of, all of our defenders and guardsmen are thrilled that they live in a place that uh, allows freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of expression. And I also think they're, they're also thrilled that they live in a place that, uh, that, that supports that fine line between my freedom of, of expression it, causing violence or destruction of your, your life and livelihood and everything else. Uh, so that's a, a delicate balance, but uh, our our folks were there just uh, our folks were there to 
again, it's it's no different than their day-to-day job. They're postured for the civil unrest. When we go into other countries, we're, we're not normally not welcome and open arms. So they're used to being in places that they're not necessarily wanted, but they just act professional and do their job. They know their rules of engagement. They know their mission. They're there to support each other. They're there to support the mission. They're there to support the community. And they're professional. Again, you're talking about you know, kids that 17, 18-year-old folks that have that largely have joined instantly be given, been given a ton of responsibility, and they've had to exercise that responsibility throughout their career successfully. And they wouldn't have been put in the position if they weren't ready for you know, what may come up. Uh, everybody's was watching everybody's back. You didn't know what was going to happen when lots of folks were kind of crowding around you. But, you know, we've, we train on everything from, we call it, or I call it verbal judo, just de-escalation through conversation. And when you're out there and, you know, people mirror neurons, if you're out there in a positive light, uh, you know, a, a positive assertive light, folks are going to respond and respect that. If you treat people respectfully, people typically reciprocate. And I just think it's an overall, it's a mindset and readiness that kind of postured and enabled us to respond. So again, everybody's thrilled that we've, we can, freedom of speech, assembly, all that kind of stuff. And our folks 100% want to support and defend that ideology. They also want to support and defend uh, you know, people's right of protection, personal property, uh, livelihood, a sense of law and order, all of those types of things. And that's why we're in the military. And it's a, it's a fine balance. I, I think our folks were thrilled to, you know, happy to serve. So one of the unique aspects about the National Guard is that, you know, when you go into the active duty, you are sent to a base somewhere other than your hometown, another state, or even another country. But with the Guard, it's the local community serving the local community. Why was that important for the civil unrest mission? So again, it's that soft touch that the the Guard has over probably an active duty component responding to situations like this. This is, you know, not everybody's from Columbus, uh, but everybody in the state's familiar with Columbus. It's our hometown. And folks will treat their hometown differently than they will, you know, a, a third world country or some other place. And it's, it's Ohioans. It's our people. Uh, so that's that connection that we have as Ohioans or that connection that we have, you know, locally, it bodes to positive results. But having that soft approach of I don't want to see my city burn down. I don't want to hurt people in my city. Nobody wants that or wants to see that happen. Final question, what should people know about these missions that we haven't already talked about? I, largely, it, just echoing the fact that uh, our folks were th- on both sides, the, the Guard, uh, the Army Guard and the Air Guard, were thrilled to serve. They were, they were fortunate for the opportunity to serve in both the, the prison missions and the civil unrest missions. And I think that's the, the relationships that are built there's a huge benefit from that. The the trust that I I would believe that the state has now put in, uh, you know, we put some credit in the trust bank with the state. So if they need us, you know, we've performed and done well already. So we should be able to do that again. Um, and I think just 
this was a, like I said at the beginning, nobody ever wants to deploy or be activated or something because that typically means something bad is going on. But we were activated and while something bad was going on and we performed and we were happy to do it. And now we will be put back on the shelf and train and be ready for the next time. Thank you very much for being here. We really appreciated having you on the show today. Yeah, my, my pleasure. It was great to uh, kind of tell them the story from a defender's perspective and for them. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and give us a rating and review. Doing so will help others find our show. If you're looking for more ways to connect with the 178th Wing, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Again, thank you for tuning in. Until next time, keep your eyes on the horizon.